Now hear a reading from chapter 40 of the book of Genesis. After these things happened, the cupbearer to the king of Egypt and the royal baker offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was enraged with his two officials, the cupbearer and the baker, so he imprisoned them in the house of the captain of the guard in the same facility where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be their attendant, and he served them. They spent some time in custody. Both of them, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream the same night. Each man's dream had its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were looking depressed. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? They told him, We both had dreams, but there is no one to interpret them. Joseph responded, Don't interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. In my dream there was a vine in front of me. On the vine there were three branches. As it budded, its blossoms opened and its clusters ripened into grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes, squeezed them into his cup, and put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is its meaning, Joseph said to him. The three branches represent three days. In three more days, Pharaoh will reinstate you and restore you to your office. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you did before when you were cupbearer. But remember me when it goes well for you, and show me kindness. Make mention of me to Pharaoh, and bring me out of this prison. For I really was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and I have done nothing wrong here for which they should put me in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation of the first dream was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also appeared in my dream, and there were three baskets of white bread on my head. In the top basket there were baked goods of every kind for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them from the basket that was on my head. Joseph replied, This is its meaning. The three baskets represent three days. In three more days, Pharaoh will decapitate you and impale you on a pole. Then the birds will eat your flesh from you. On the third day, it was Pharaoh's birthday, so he gave a feast for all his servants. He lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker in the midst of his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his former position so that he placed the cup in Pharaoh's, mind, Pharaoh's hand. But the chief baker he impaled, just as Joseph had predicted. But the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. In the moment of silence, please speak to us, Lord, about your word. Father, thank you for this glimpse of your servant Joseph in prison. And uh, Lord, uh, I ask that you speak to us through this story. Lord, we need eyes to see what you're showing us. We need ears to hear what you're saying to us. We need hearts to believe what you're doing in our midst and what you're calling us to. So come, Holy Spirit, have your way in the preaching of the word. Amen. Amen. Well, today I would like to talk about why it was white bread and not wheat bread in the baker's house. I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> although, you know, I prefer wheat bread, and I think 
you should too. Uh, that's not the point. Uh, the, the truth is, this, this story, when I think about it from the big perspective of the book of Genesis, which we've been studying for some months now, you really could skip this story and the big story would, would carry, would hold together just fine. It would make sense. You know, after all, the last chapter, Joseph got thrown in prison. You could just mention that he interpreted a couple of dreams with accuracy. And so years later, when the nation is facing another troubling dream, the dream interpreter from prison gets called upon and he comes out of prison. The, the details otherwise could be construed as extra. So why include it? Uh, first of all, though this chapter records a conversation with a few guys that could have taken less than an hour, Joseph was likely imprisoned for many years. In fact, one commentator I, I uh, have thought that he was imprisoned for up to 13 years. I mean, this is a significant portion of his life. The Israelites have to know that the, the hero of the story that they're hearing suffered in Egypt in ways similar to the ways that they suffered. Um, but there's a deeper message that I think the Lord wanted his people to hear in the wilderness and he wants us to hear today. You see, the book of Genesis has been reformatting and retelling the story of Adam, Eve, and the serpent and the forbidden fruit in many forms. You can actually, the more you look for it, the more you see it. And in the chapter just before this, Joseph himself was offered forbidden fruit. Uh, he was offered the chance to be made equal to his master Potiphar by sleeping with Potiphar's wife. But unlike Adam, he refused the temptation. Like Adam, he was banished for his choice. He was sent out of the, the better place, out of the garden of Potiphar's home into a pit. Adam and Eve abandoned their mission when they stole the fruit. Joseph was given a new one. In fact, no matter what garden, home, or barren pit Joseph calls home, he eventually rules over it. Not by stealing or manipulating or being a big, strong personality, but Joseph ends up ruling over whatever place he's in by serving. And when he serves, he eventually rules. And where he rules, people thrive. So I want to talk about the servanthood of Joseph today. Uh, as many of you know, my family said goodbye to our undisputed matriarch this year in May. That's my grandmother, Faneel Nash. She, for the last couple years of her life, was a faithful participant in worship here at LCC. Uh, and just last night, we had the final sort of memorial service. There's been different iterations of it. There was one here. Uh, several of you were at that one, one in Oklahoma where she lived for many years. And then we did a Zoom service because we have family really scattered all over the globe who wanted a chance to honor her. And so I've heard in these iterations many stories of her life, many of which I knew, plenty of which I did not know. 
uh, but none of which have surprised me. You see, everyone who knew my grandmother looked up to her, although she was quite short. I've, I've now heard several women say with utter resolve, not just the nice memorial service thing, but with utter resolve, that they wanted to be like Vanille when they grew up. My grandmother was strong. She was never intimidated. But there's a theme in all of the stories that people have told about her in these, ser in these services. Uh, every memory that was shared, every reflection, the, this theme carries through all of them. My grandmother made it her life's mission to serve. In fact, the book of Proverbs was her favorite book. She claimed to have read a chapter every day for many years. I estimate she went through the book hundreds of times. And there's this proverb early on, 327. Do not withhold good from those who need it when you have the ability to help. That verse describes nearly every decision my grandmother made in life. Do not withhold good from those who need it. And because she did that, she was the leader. I mean, she, she quietly led any group that she got involved in. She was the social centerpiece of two large retirement communities. She quietly led our family, which happens to have more than a couple loud leader types in it. <laughs> Um, when people knew her, they looked up to her, not because she could do tricks on a motorcycle, not because she could midwife a calf's birth, uh, not because she could make the best peppermint bark I've ever tasted. Uh, no, they looked up to her because she never withheld good from those who needed it. When she had the ability to help, whether it was her grandson needing babysitting when she's 90 years old, or a telemarketer who needed someone to respond to a survey. She was always willing to help. So last week we were in Genesis 39 where Joseph is in Potiphar's house and that passage repeats several times that the Lord was with Joseph. It emphasizes his presence. And so we reflected on what it, what it means, what we do to remember God's presence. We used uh, a chapter out of the book of Exodus where God teaches his people how to remember his presence using feasts and, and the Sabbath and, and offerings. They acknowledge and remember God's presence. That's, that's the way the Lord has prescribed for us to acknowledge him, to remember him. Now, in the New Testament book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gives instructions for a similar purpose. His language for remembering the Lord's presence is be filled with the Spirit. And there he writes, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Just as Exodus 34 gave ways to remember God's presence, so too does Ephesians 5. It tells us to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs. It tells us to give thanks to the God the Father for all things. Like That's just like remembering the Sabbath and coming together and, and giving offerings, right? But then it adds another dimension to it. If you could click down um, 
Oh, sorry, we've got a, f a background issue. When Stephen goes out of town, we, we don't know how to do our tech. So <laughs> that's just the way it is. But um, so at the end of that instruction, the last thing that Paul tells the Ephesians for how to be filled with the Spirit is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What an interesting instruction for how to be filled with the Spirit. We submit to one another to do that. The, the word for submit is hupotasso. And that literally means, it's, it's up here, it literally means uh, to place under, to get low, to place yourself beneath another person. Paul in other places to, calls on his readers to consider others better than yourself. That's how you submit, you place yourself under it's the same idea and think about the story of joseph by no effort of his own he has literally been brought low first he goes down to shechem and then he goes down to egypt and then he goes down into the pit in egypt i mean he's as low as he can possibly go from the israelite mindset he's underneath everyone and yet he does not wallow in his lowliness he serves with eagerness. The third verse of chapter 40, in fact, is, is a strange one, and it's a little clue to Joseph's character. Remember, Joseph was framed by Potiphar's wife, so Potiphar becomes enraged and, and throws Joe in prison. Potiphar, you may recall, was the captain of the guard. And so here we get Joseph in prison, and it tells us that his other two guys are getting thrown in prison, and which prison are they placed in? They're placed in the prison that's in the home of the captain of the guard, which is where Joseph is. Joseph is living in Potiphar's basement still. You know, we thought of Potiphar as like being enraged and throwing Joseph out. But in fact, something very different has happened. And we already learned that Joseph was so impressive and responsible in the prison that he's become uh, in charge. He's, the warden has made Joseph responsible for all of the other prisoners. So there's more to the story between Joseph and Potiphar. That There's no way to prove this. You can totally disagree. But when in the last chapter it said Potiphar became enraged, I think he was enraged at the situation. His wife had very effectively framed Joseph. And there were witnesses and there was evidence. There was nothing Potiphar could do except throw Joseph in prison. And yet there he is in prison. And who is it we find out who's giving Joseph promotions in prison? It's Potiphar. Joseph continues to serve wherever he goes. And Potiphar continues to empower him. So what is Joseph empowered to do? It says he is empowered to serve two of Pharaoh's officials, both of whom have sinned against Pharaoh and enraged Pharaoh. Joseph could have been a cruel and bitter warden. He could have taken it out on these guys. Like, he's been punished. He's been thrown in prison unjustly. He could have been a bully, right? He had the influence and authority to do so. Instead, Joseph did not withhold good from those who need it. What God wanted the Israelites to hear and us to is no matter what our circumstances are, 
if you choose to serve, you will be exalting the image of God. What were Adam and Eve supposed to do and be in the garden? They were supposed to be God's image, be submitted to him and represent him to the rest of creation. Biblical history turns as much on servants as it does on kings. A millennium later, after the Joseph story, the prophet Isaiah will sing songs of a mysterious hero who finally rescues God's people. And who is this mysterious hero? Well, he's regarded as the suffering servant, one who has lost all his rights, unjustly punished, suffering on, the, on behalf of others and causing them to flourish. And I think that that's what we get to see in this scene in Joseph's life. So there's a few things that Joseph's life teaches us about service, about servanthood. I just want to point out a few of them. Number one, a trustworthy servant receives authority. The captain trusts Joseph. Chapter 39 tells us he didn't think twice about his household while Joseph was in charge, and now he doesn't think twice about his prison while Joseph is in charge. Why? This is a deep, ongoing biblical principle. The one who lays down their life for others will be the greatest of all. Of course, this is a major theme in Jesus' teaching. In Matthew chapter 20, he says, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Again, in chapter 23, he says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Mark chapter 9 has him saying, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. By la after laying down his life for the world, Jesus could say with total humility, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why? Because he served a trustworthy servant will be given authority. Second, a godly servant is attentive to the needs of others. Can you imagine this scene in which a Hebrew subwarden approaches two Egyptian officials and sees that they're sad? Like they're in prison! <laughs> Of course they're sad. They got thrown in prison by an enraged Pharaoh. Of course, they, but he comes up and he is attentive to their needs. Guys, why the long face? What's going on, buddy? Like, that is not prison conversation. And yet that's what Joseph is doing. He is attentive to their needs. He values them as people. He wants them to flourish, even here in this prison. I mean, think of... Think of Jesus again on his way through a crowded courtyard. He's going to a, a Jewish official's home to heal his sick daughter, and people are pressing all against him. And what happens? Jesus feels someone touch him with need. And he turns, he says, power went out of me. Who touched me? And Jesus has a conversation with this woman whom he should have yelled at. By all Jewish custom, Jesus, a rabbi, a man touched by an unclean woman with an issue of blood, and instead, he is attentive to her needs. He empowers her. He serves her. And he exalts her. 
In fact, she gets more credibility, more publicity than the Jewish official and his daughter. Jesus does that healing in private later. A servant, a godly servant, is attentive to the needs of others. Third, the sentence is kind of a walk, but bear with me. A servant who serves out of reverence for God becomes a conduit of his power. A servant who serves out of reverence for God becomes a conduit of his power. Uh, Look, we could have spent the entire service talking about the, the biggest part of this chapter, which is these weird dreams and the fact that this guy is able to interpret them accurately. They both seem like the same dream with just different imagery, right? And yet he draws two different meanings from the two of them. We, you know, dreams are a big part of, of the book of Genesis, especially the life of Joseph. It was two dreams that led his brothers to betray him. And now he's in prison and he's interpreting two dreams. And I wonder if we're going to have another story where there are two dreams. Dreams are a huge part of his story. But this passage... It's not a lesson in interpreting dreams. It's a lesson in faithfulness. But what does Joseph say? He, he, he doesn't say, come on, I've been trained in dream interpretation. You know, I'll, I'll walk you through it. No, Joseph says, don't all interpretations belong to God. In other words, he doesn't believe himself an expert in dream interpretation. He believes he has access to God who can help him. By submitting to others out of reverence for Christ, Joseph finds himself filled with the Spirit such that he can interpret these dreams. The point isn't the dreams. It is the mindset of Joseph. He's convinced that God could use dreams and he operates in this faith. Now, some of you are dreamers. I know some of you are dreamers. You, you have a lot of dreams. Sometimes you know those dreams are because you're stressed about something or whatever. It, many of you, like me, are always, you know, flashed to the last day of a college semester and all, everything is due the next day and you didn't even know you were in the class. Um, anyone? Yeah. So, okay, good. Several. That's great. Um, that... I don't know why. I'll keep going back to that dream. Um, And yet once in a while, those of you who dream a lot, you have a dream and you have just this gut feeling like, oh, there's something to that dream. It's significant. Many years ago, in a very different season of our church's life, we hosted a couple times these dream interpretation workshops. And yes, it's as strange as it sounds. Um, but uh, the, the person who led these workshops was my friend Janine Rodriguez. And the reason I asked her to come and do these workshops was because the way she used this process of dream interpretation. Here's what Janine believed. One, all interpretations come from God. Two, God will use any means necessary to draw people to Jesus. And those were her convictions that drove her interpretation of dreams. So here's what Janine would do. Every year, she lives in England now, but every year she would go as a vendor to the desert festival called Burning Man. 
Now, some of you know about Burning Man, others don't. Burning Man is like this massive, ambiguous, new age festival. At the end of it, there's this giant, you know, man, birch statue made out of wood that they light on fire. But there's, I mean, there's every breed of paganism there. There's, there's everything from, from crystals to, you know, animal spiritism to you know, just everything, you know. Clothing is optional. <laughs> Um, so Janine would go and she would go as a vendor and she would set up a booth that said dream interpretation and you better believe that community wants some answers to their dreams and so she would have a line out the door every day of Burning Man and every single dream she would prayerfully find a way to use the imagery of the dream no matter how strange to say you know I think Jesus of the Bible is pursuing you. And guess what? People gave their lives to Jesus in droves right there at Burning Man. I mean, that's a great way to interpret dreams. So Joseph is following a similar principle. He believes all dreams come from God. He doesn't know about Jesus yet. But there in the middle of the pagan madness, people surrendering to King Jesus? Can you, can you believe it? She didn't need anything else. She didn't go with a bunch of cool equipment or, or books or charts or anything like that. You see, a servant becomes a conduit of Jesus' power, of the Lord's power, especially when they're empty-handed. There are these scenes in the Gospels it happens in Matthew chapter 9, it happen, or sorry, Matthew chapter 10, it happens in Luke chapter 9, it happens in Mark, but I can't remember the chapter right now. And uh, it's when Jesus gathers his 12 disciples and he's going to send them out ahead of him. And they're going to announce the kingdom to the towns that Jesus is coming to. In, in other words, they're going to go and like be like heralds saying, the king is on his way. But here's what happens. Jesus first gives them his authority, whatever that means. He gives them his authority. And then he tells them, here's what you're supposed to bring. Nothing. Don't pack extra clothes. Don't bring extra money. Don't bring food. Don't bring a weapon. Don't bring a staff. Don't bring anything. You're going to show up to a town and be completely dependent on the people of the town. Stay wherever someone will let you stay. But then proclaim the kingdom. Oh, and by the way, as you're proclaiming the kingdom, prove that you have kingdom power by oh, casting out demons and, and healing the sick and cleansing lepers and, and raising the dead, he says in Matthew 9. <laughs> what? So they go empty-handed, completely dependent on strangers, and then they become an expression of God's power, conduits of his power. That's what happens when we serve. The fourth thing we learn about servants from Joseph is a servant has no rights. This is important. There's a very human moment in our story. Joseph interprets the dream. He tells the one guy, yeah, you're going to be back in Pharaoh's good graces. And by the way, once you are, tell him about me, please. you got to get me out of here, man. I'm stuck in this pit. He uses the same word that, he used, that was used when he was thrown in a pit by his brothers. I am stuck in this pit. And I'm here unjustly. Please help me. It's a human moment. 
And what happens? The cupbearer goes, he gets exalted again, and the last words of our chapter, he forgets about Joseph. And Joseph has no recourse. He can't do anything about it. He has no rights whatsoever. In 1978, a modern classic on spiritual life was written, and I'll bet some of you have read it. It's by Richard Foster. It's called Celebration of Discipline. One of the disciplines that Richard Foster highlights in that book is the discipline of service. He makes an eloquent case for humble, selfless service. But then he notes in that chapter that many of us, as soon as we start start talking about service, and especially about a servant having no rights, we get a little hesitation, don't we? Here's what he says. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs to you. It'll be on screen. A natural and understandable hesitancy accompanies any serious discussion of service. The hesitancy is prudent since it is wise to count the cost before plunging headlong into any discipline. We experience a fear that comes out something like this. Well, if I do that, People will take advantage of me. They will walk all over me. Right here, Foster says, we must see the difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. When we choose to serve, we are still in charge. We decide whom we will serve and when we will serve. And if we are in charge, we will worry a great deal about anyone stepping on us, that is, taking charge over us. But when we choose to be a servant... We give up the right to be in charge. There is great freedom in this. If we voluntarily choose to be taken advantage of, then we cannot be manipulated. When we choose to be a servant, we surrender the right to decide who and when we will serve. We become available and vulnerable. And that's how we become conduits of God's power. Jesus himself calls his followers to give up their rights. I mean, there's this bizarre moment in Luke 17 where Jesus first describes Roman slaves. He says, you would never expect a Roman slave to do all his jobs and then get to dine at the table with his master. And so he tells his guys, this this is how you should speak of yourself after you've served, Luke 17. We are slaves undeserving of special praise. We have only done what was our duty. Is it any wonder that the most influential leaders in the early church, the guys writing the New Testament, always referred to themselves as slaves of Christ? Even Jesus' half-brother Jude introduces himself as a slave of Christ. What's the lesson? The results of our service are outside of our hands. We simply serve. And if you really believed this, you'd be free. The only way you can believe this is if you trust that everything you really deeply need is already provided to you through Christ. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what will happen when that happens? Number five, servanthood is the path to joy. Joseph's life is not easy, but can't you just feel most of the time the joy that's, that just like oozes out of him? 
I mean, he's so willing to, to help these guys. He's like the cheery kid in class on test day. I mean, it, there's something about Joseph. What is it? He's found joy. He has no rights, no possession, as far as he knows, no family, no hope. And yet he is totally free. Um, there's this great bit of this poem by William Blake. The poem is called The Clod and the Pebble. And he describes this. He describes how we can experience joy when we serve and what happens when we think the opposite way. Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care, but for another gives its ease and builds a heaven in hell's despair. That's what Joseph does. He's in the pit of living hell, and yet he builds a heaven there by serving others. What happens when we don't do that? Blake describes it like this. Love seeketh only self to please, to bind another to its delight, joys in another's loss of ease, and builds a hell in heaven's despite. You could have everything going for you, all of the easiest circumstances in the world. You could be the wealthiest person in Littleton. And yet, if all you want is for other people to meet your needs, you will be living a hell even in a heavenly situation. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul calls us to have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. You know, Christ Jesus, the one who wrapped a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet, the one who was among us as one whom served, the one who, who laid down his life for others. How does Philippians 2 say his attitude was? Though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, by sharing in human nature. What happens? He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He served on the cross ultimately and was ultimately glorified. So as we finish today, let's talk for just a moment about that cross where Jesus laid down his rights completely and became a conduit of the greatest expression of God's power that history has ever known. This week we were discussing this passage and Stephen pointed out an amazing connection to me. There Jesus is on the cross and he has two criminals with him, a thief on his right and on his left. Does that sound familiar? You're, you're bound unjustly and there are two criminals with you? One of these criminals is unrepentant and mocks Jesus with the crowds. The other realizes that he is hanging next to the Lord of life. Joseph is with two criminals. One is destined for life and the other is destined for death. And yet in the Joseph story, Joseph asks the cupbearer who is going to glory, please remember me. And he's forgotten. 
on the cross, this thief who realizes who Jesus is and that he's going to glory, says, please remember me. And immediately, Jesus responds, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. You can serve, even in prison, even to the point of death, because Jesus offers that same promise to you. Your future is secure through him. A servant may have no rights, but they have all the joy. Friends, on the very night that our Lord was betrayed, he had a joyful feast, and he served his brothers. He took the bread, and he broke it and gave thanks for it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He laid down his life for us so that we might live. Father, thank you.